Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Andy Frank, founder of Novant and formerly of Tritium and Sky Foundry. We talked about Novant's founding story and their unique approach to the independent data layer of the smart building stack. For context, I shared my not so great experience with implementing technology before products like Novant were available, which should entertain some of you. Then we zoomed out a bit and talked about the challenges Andy sees in implementing smart building use cases and where the market is headed in the future. Without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus podcast with Andy Frank. Hey, Andy, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. Can you start by introducing yourself? Sure. I'm Andy Frank. I'm with Novent. I, I don't know if I was one of the, well, I don't know if I was the, one of the first people in the, in the Nexus landscape. I feel like I was early on. So it's been exciting to actually be part of um, the cool kids finally on one of these things. Maybe hopefully at least one person finds anything I have to say interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a part of the, the community since early sh- early times. I think we're more like the cool nerds, which is like it puts us in the upper echelon of the nerds, but it doesn't make us <laughs> cool kids, I don't think. When I describe what I do at like a dinner party, I don't feel like a cool kid. I feel like a a, a weird a weird kid. So, well cool. What's before starting a van? What's your background? What would you do before that? I mean, I already know, but can you? So I've been in this space, I guess, since I got out of college, very reluctantly, you know, speaking of explaining to people what you do, if buildings, if you don't think buildings are cool now, they definitely were not 20 years ago when no one knew what the hell building automation was. I'm not sure I even did. So I went to work training after college. I was there for, I don't know, maybe five or six years, worked on the core team on AgriX, and then when Honeywell acquired Tritium, my brother and I left and we started the Sky Foundry. Did that for 10 years or so, 12, 13, I guess time keeps ticking up on me. And then maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, I sort of formally started an event. You know, that's the bridge version. Nice. Cool. And and what is Novant and why did you start it? <laughs> Honestly, it was just something that I wanted to do that was different. I think I'd spent 20 years largely doing the same thing and 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 Tritium and Skyfoundry couldn't be more different, but fundamentally it's visualization and tooling around you know, building data. And I think I just did all I could handle <laughs> after a while. And so I think, you know, going back maybe 2013, 2014, I worked with a company to put SkySpark on embedded systems. And I got introduced to, to embedded Linux, hardware, that kind of stuff. And it just really interested me. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, how do I come, come back to this? And so... Before Novant was really a Novant, it was, I want to build hardware and I want to do stuff in, in building automation because I don't really know how to do anything else. But this time I have 20 years, I'm sort of in, I'm not leaving now. What the hell can I do? That led to, I think it was a baseband level of technology you need to operate in this space. You, know, you need IO, you need to be able to talk back net, you know, Modbus, Haystack, KNX, all stuff. You need some kind of pluggable a protocol to an IO system. You need to be embedded trending. Well, I think you need embedded trending. And embedded trending on, on low-cost hardware is very different than doing it in the cloud. Um, it's different. There's connectivity. I think you need to think about security in 2021, 2022, you know, remote connectivity, all that kind of stuff. 
And Data Gateway was the easiest product to build while flushing all that technology out. And then once okay. we have that in place, which we do now, it gives us a lot of options for what we might do next. Okay. Um, so I wasn't even sure that this thing was a, a market. <laughs> and then about six months in, I think you wrote a blog post on the independent data layer. And I was like, oh, so I'm not, I'm not the only one. And I think yeah. it's sort of morphed into a real thing you know, since then. Totally. And I, I don't mean to gloss over the whole like founding Sky Foundry thing and all of that. <laughs> we dove pretty deep into that topic with John, John Petsy, and we'll link to that in the show notes. So sorry if, if everyone was like, well, wait, <laughs> we're skipping this huge story. We'll, we'll, we'll gloss through that unless there's anything you want to share about that phase of your life uh, as you look back on it. No, not really. Um... It was fun and interesting. I'm not sure I have any desire to do it again necessarily. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was in my 20s then, and I don't not sure that I have the energy to do that the mm -hmm. same way at least again. But it was it was it was different time back then. Technology was different. Startups were different. Everything was different back then. So it was fun, but yeah, I, I had I got my fill out of it. Nice. Okay. Cool. Well, talk to me more. So so it sounds like Novant was similar. Novant, Novant, Novant. I don't, I don't correct people. I'm trying to see who says it more and then I'll okay. go with that. <laughs> I've always been like Novant was in my mind and now I've heard you say Novant a couple of times. So I'm going to try to. So I, it, the re, I mean, Novant was, I had to find a domain name that wasn't taken and a trademark I could get. And so yeah. it was like the third name I picked with my attorney and I was finally done and said and had done everything and Someone was like us, oh, so you work for Navant Health. And I'm like, who's Navant Health? Oh, they're yeah. a giant health system in Southeast mm -hmm. um, US. It's a great, but at this point, um, that ship has sailed. So okay. uh, at worst case, I'm they're, they're, they help me with brand recognition somehow. Yeah. Yeah, that happened to me at, at Realcom this year. There was a huge booth of a company called Nexus. And everyone was like, look at this booth that James got. Nexus Labs must be doing really well. I was like, no, nice. that's, that's not me. Um, but where I was going with that is the, it, it seems like you're similar. Like I, when I started Nexus, I was like, I think I just want to write this newsletter. And then as it, it has kind of led me into this company that I actually didn't have fully planned out at the beginning. Right. Whereas some people start a company and they're like, this is my long-term vision, but talking to you offline, it seems like you do have this longer term vision versus what you guys started with, which is this gateway and independent data layer software. Can you, can you talk about that long-term vision before we, we talk about the short term? Yeah, so, and a lot of that is also, you know, I've done things a certain way for 20 years and part of it was, what if I did it differently? Um, yeah. so at one point there was, was, is this a grand experiment that's going to fail miserably? Um, yeah. I think I'm, okay. I think I'm past that point, but you know, in the past with the way we've approached stuff is we spent, you know, months and years building a very specific tech stack and yeah. that works great. If you know exactly how you're going to use it and what the product market fit is, the reality is you almost never get that right. And so okay. you're sort of forcing it to fit in. And hmm. so I tried to keep it a little more loose with Novant, where we've got a much lighter technology, it's more composable, and so that we can sort of mix and match things more easily to actually fit the real problems that that that, that surface. And that's just the thing that it takes time 
you know, you, the more customers you get, the more exposure you get, the more problems you get, and you need that feedback loop to really figure out, you know, what, what you're trying to actually solve. So that's sort of our philosophy with, with you know, how we approach it from a technology perspective. But, you know, long-term, I'm a big believer that technology can automate and solve a lot of problems in any field. We're seeing that all over the place, particularly in buildings. And so that's sort of how can we be a technology partner to other people. I think we're sort of a horizontal platform layers where we want to stick mm-hmm. mostly just I can't do another visualization or chart <laughs> or tool <laughs> um, I just can't I'm done I'm spent to help solve these problems right and I don't know what those problems are I just know that you've got to be nimble and responsive and there's and there's a certain technology and expertise that I think you need to do that but a lot of it is going to be a cooperation between you know MSIs building owners other technology also evolving and communities like Nexus that bring these people together and actually force them to talk to sort of see, you know, tease out, you know, what, what those actual, you know, solutions and pathways look like. Cool. So it sounds like what you're up to today, like where you started with is this concept of, that I've written a lot about and we'll link to in the show notes is the independent data layer. So what, when you describe this concept, you know, obviously I've tried to explain it to everyone as well, but when you describe it, how do you describe it? Like, what is it? And maybe pretend that like you're explaining to a five-year-old before, and then we'll build on it from there. The way I think I frame it, and I don't know if I can dumb it down that bad. Um, yeah, it's tough. But impossible question. I think, you know, when I think about this in a really like coarse blocks, I think you've got sort of control systems and building, and you've got interesting applications up in the cloud. Yeah. And there's something in the, in the middle. And it's really gnarly and messy and ugly and, and, and pain in the butt to work with. And you know, specifically, I think you can break that middle block up into three things. You know, one is just connectivity, right? How do I connect to these systems, right? You know, it's, it's the protocol implementations, you know, it, it's, you know, how, how you know, can they do discovery, you know, right? how, how efficiently can they pull stuff? Do they manage not to bring down the whole control network when they're doing stuff, right? Because a lot of times it's secondary to the building systems, um, yeah. you know, core role. And then, you know, the second one is sort of, you know, trend data, which I think is, largely even today has gone overlooked by a lot of companies as sort of secondary to what their actual purpose in life is. And, you know, there's some groups that have, that are like, yeah, this is easy. We do this all the time, but there's a lot of people that don't, right? If you're an energy consultant or something that you probably don't have that expertise on staff and you don't have, you know, you've got some data sitting on some EC2 instance that you booted up three years ago that if it went down, you wouldn't be able to bring it back up. Who knows Hmm. if it's secure or backed up or anything. And so there's a lot of hidden complexity to actually doing that and storing that data that I think is a great candidate to outsource for almost anybody. And I think the third, the third really, really big one is this concept of, of onboarding data. Right? I've got a bunch of data in the system. I've got an application that needs it. How do I, how do I merge this to? So, and that, that's a big gnarly problem. That's the, really the biggest problem in the space that I see. And I'm probably not exactly answering your question here, and it's certainly not simple and quick, but I think the value from that is you outsource a lot of complexity and time. And yeah. that's the number one goal to people, to, to vendors, right, is they don't have to do this work. No, I haven't talked to a single person that enjoys doing this <laughs> or even that wants to do this. So if there's an easy way to do it, they will happily outsource it. Yeah. Um, and I think from the and from the, the the building's perspective, you know, the owner, I see that as leverage. You know, yeah. They have more of the data. They're not asking their their contractor or their vendor to give them their data back to them, right? They have it. They control who gets access to it. Having that onboarding in those trends done once 
I think gives you better economies of scale, right? You're not duplicating that work for different, you know, I don't think the silos are going away in the next year or two. So yeah. the short-term fix to that is, okay, well, let's slowly work our way up that stack. You know, first one, let's do a common data layer, right? And then you, you're, not, you're deduplicating that work from the data perspective, um, but also gives you as a building owner more portability, right? If I don't like, you know, vendor X, okay, well, I'll stand up vendor B, here's the data, you know, see yeah. what you got. And if it's better, then I'll switch, right? It gives you more portability. Um, and I want to underscore the, the outsourcing point. So circa 2015, I think it was, I was leading a team. We were a SkySpark reseller. And because I was the leader of the team, all mechanical engineers, right? So no software people, no networking people, no cloud experts. I myself, basically in my free time, stood up an AWS whole environment, right? And figured all of that out on my own pretty much and started connecting that environment to hospital networks. Where else was I connecting it to? Everywhere that I needed to, to, to be able to set up site-to-site VPN connections and get data flowing. And obviously it worked, but like how much, how many projects would I have done what I have needed to do to pay back that investment time. And I think that is happening all over the world right now. Because we were early-ish then, you know, the number of consultants that were doing what we were doing in 2015, that was early. I think businesses like that nowadays, it's gotta be table stakes. You're doing a retro commissioning project, you're doing commissioning on a new building. It's table stakes to use FDD and those companies can't all be trying to figure out the cloud game and the integration game and yes. networking game. Yeah. And, and I think the two, the two things I try to emphasize that is one, it, maybe it's relatively easy to set up, but six months down the line when you don't remember what the hell you did and something breaks. Yeah. It always happens at the worst possible time. Yeah. And it was not relatively easy to set up. I, I just threw a lot of hours at it. <laughs> so. Well, that, yeah. And it's just, you know, yeah. And you don't know what you did right and what you didn't, didn't do wrong. And it's yeah. just, yeah. Yeah. And then there's the risk of doing something that, wrong. Yeah. You, yeah. You've got the responsibility, you know, it was a security breaches or the data breaches, you know, all that kind yeah. of stuff that goes along with it. That just yeah. really isn't necessary. All right. Yeah. So the, you know, year and a half or two years that you've been doing this initial product thing, I'm, I'm curious sort of what challenges that, you see to implementing the IDL. So on this <laughs> podcast, we've talked about the IDL concept. I've talked about it with Brian and Andrew, we'll link to all those conversations, but like, I don't know that we've really got into like, well, what, what are the practical challenges to, to actually doing it in the real world at this point? I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. It's sobering <laughs> how complicated it actually is in practice you know i've done this for 20 years but it's always been in the context of get it good enough move on yeah to the next person and that's what i think you see from a lot of people right is this onboarding data better than the next guy doesn't make you better at what you do <laughs> right so it's sort of what you do i mean it's what you do but you just spend as little time as possible to get to the next thing but when all you're doing all day long is focused on this i think you 
you appreciate the complexity of everything involved and it's also, but it's also an interesting challenge because you start to see some of the details that you previously probably overlooked or didn't go deep on enough. Okay. Um, and, you know, I just had a call, you know, with the customer yesterday actually. And I, I, I'm, I'm, I know all of, of my clients because I'm like, tell me everything that sucks about this. How can we get better? You know, because some people are just too nice. They don't, want, they don't want to tell you the bad stuff. I do my best to, to be brutal, pretty brutally honest with me. But, you know, that was like, well, how are you doing this? And, you know, they're like, well, you know, we take all the data. Some of the naming conventions are inconsistent, which I think that's, people know that by now. But then they're like, we don't actually know which point is which. So we'll take, you know, and I don't know if they're doing it on a point, but point basis or just spot checking. But, you know, it's basically taking the point data that, that they think it is. And they would go into the BMS, pull up the graphic of the BMS and actually match the points one by one, like visually. Yeah. And I just cringed at that because I was like, I don't know how you, you solve that today but i'm like that's got to get better you got i mean we just and yeah. i think you know that's what i think has been most eye-opening is how much of a house of cards this actually is okay you keep these huge sophisticated you know digital twins analytics all this stuff but they're on like them like a like a sand foundation <laughs> that's right like yeah. part of any time um mm-hmm. and you make a lot of assumptions i think that that data is correct and i think a lot of cases i guarantee you there's probably a lot of people pulling in data that isn't what they think it is. And that's a big gnarly problem to solve. You know, I think, you know, ML, AI, those things will aid in, in doing sort of identification and, and modeling, but I don't think they solve the other part. Which is what? What's the other part? Uh, I'm not sure how to capture that or explain, but I think it's the fact that I've got all these sensors in the building, I've got control systems. How do I know what's what in that it's correct? It's almost like, like unit tests in, in, yeah. in a program development, right? I, I, I can do that. I can run this unit test and I know that this, 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 this is the way it works, both that I'm front and also as a regression test as I enhance the system. You almost needs like that, like that for buildings, right? So if I do something, I can go back and click a switch and say like, yeah, you know, these 300 sensors, air quality sensors in my building are actually one working, but two, they are where they are. They are what they are. They are mm-hmm. where they are in what you think they are. Yeah. Um, and that I think is, that's not something that we solve on our own. I think that's probably for community effort that we need technology inside buildings to continue to evolve. If anything, I think that's been, it's maybe a huge pro- proponent of MSIs. I think, mm-hmm. you know, what I do with my customers going into buildings is it's also a huge people problem. Yeah. Like one wants to help coordinate anything. And it's like not having that point person on top of everything slows everything down to like to crawl. And so I think it's sort of a combination of, of all of these people sort of slowly and iteratively getting better over time to help solve. But I think that is, I just, the engineer in me thinks that, sees that it's like that needs to get done and, and be super solid before we put too much effort in building on top of that. I mean, they can yeah. happen in parallel, but I think they've got to catch up at some point, I think. Um, yeah, and in that catching up, to me, it seems like there's so much opportunity for whoever's setting up and maintaining the software in the building for them to do a better job documenting describing what what's actually happening so you're talking about what sensors do i have where are they at what are they measuring right what meters do i have where are they at what are they measuring which ones are upstream and downstream of each other i think there's so much room for an existing controller, an existing system to self-describe better than they're currently doing. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a lot of out of band context there. 
like, yeah, they probably have a big spreadsheet in Excel somewhere that describes the structure, but it's not machine readable. Yeah. I posted on last, or not a couple of days ago, you know, I always find interesting technology in other fields that, you know, why it can be applied to buildings. One of them was ODB, right? I could plug this little reader into any car and get all the diagnostics information and tons of interesting comments. But I think one of the takeaways was that, that yeah, I can get sort of raw data, but it's sort of that, that super structural information that describes it all that I think we're missing today. And that's not yeah. machine readable. You know, I can you know, pull a hundred thousand points out of a building, but it's just a flat list of points and controllers, right? There's not that sort of, and I think there's, I think there's, there's steps between the full digital twin semantic haystack model and just sort of some structural things in between that I think we're missing that need to be machine, machine readable, that that's not there. And I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, but I think that's a gap that needs to be solved. Yeah. Yeah, those are huge challenges with the independent data layer. One of the ones that I have that I've had a couple of different projects related to this is just being able to make the business case that there needs to be a dedicated infrastructure layer because so many people are so used to making business cases that are based on energy savings or based on tenant experience or whatever, right? And the independent data layer is infrastructure. It's like, it's it's a couple degrees removed from the actual use cases that you're trying to enable. So how do you think about business case? It sounds like when you said my client earlier, you're going directly to service providers and application providers that need the data to enable what they're trying to do. You're not necessarily going toward going to a building owner to make the business case. So right? I think there's a couple different, at least from our experience so far. And I think to add on to the fact that you're removed from the energy stuff is also that technically you can do this today. So it's why am I paying extra for something I can already do? Um, I think yeah. people that have done this long enough know that, that you get what you pay for. But I think the, thing, the three markets I think that we are seeing, you know, one is, is I think the long-term, yeah, I think it's from MSIs and building owners, it's going to be a spec item or even a requirement in buildings that they have this IDL mm-hmm. just because they see the value in it. And I think there's people that are kicking the tires on that today, but I think that's a long-term thing. Yeah. Um, the two ones I see today are you know, people like energy consultants or optimization consultants who are not IT experts or, or just don't want to, it's not worth it to them to manage this stuff and do this, this kind of thing. So if there's a good cost-effective, easy to use alternative, you know, they're happy to use it. And that's, you know, sort of get the data out of the control system and then they don't have to have access to the actual BMS and that kind of stuff. So it mm-hmm. just it works the economics and, and then the process works out a lot easier. The third one is, which I'm not sure that that, I anticipated, I guess I knew, but I was surprised that I had the feedback that I've had is that people that it is part of their product, but they don't want to do it. Yeah. Right. You know, all these products and platforms need the data, but I hear the same story from ever again. Like it's, it's a pain, you know, we don't, we don't make any money. We lose money on this stuff. So if there's yeah. someone else who will solve this problem for us, we will happily outsource it at the right price. And so that's sort of where I see, I see the three things emerging right now. Um, but it's a B2B business, I think, right now. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I don't see, at least the way our technology works, you know, we're not going directly to building owners because you're right. I don't, I don't have a compelling argument of why they need to do this today. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. And so when I think about my past life as an energy consultant or commissioning agent, right, I would have a lump sum project or, and sometimes an annual maintenance contract that I would be trying to fit this effort underneath, right? So I'm trying to budget out how many hours is going to take me, 
how many maybe skies for our points do I need to buy? What's my, you know, aggregated cloud cost for this project? Can you describe what it'd be like hiring you instead? Like, I think it's just a dot, it's a, a cent a point or something like that. Like how, how does your model so, work? Yeah. And it, yeah. So, and, and that, yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I like pray, way oversimplify what we actually simplify, <laughs> um, but <laughs> That's me. I just I move like my mind's like 100 miles per hour all the time. You know, when I say make it easy, there's a lot of, of context attached to that. One, it's you got to be able to put in the building and it just works. Right. And, and I have people that have never stepped foot in a building. They just ship the box to a building. Someone plugs into the network and they do it. Two is that, you know, as a, we're a volume business play. So the overhead has to be minimal. I can't hold everyone's hand. So the tooling and everything has to be super, super simple, easy to use, self-explanatory, which means it won't be the most complicated product, but I would argue that most people don't need what they think they need. They'll happily get by with something simpler. And the other part of that is pricing where you, you need something that's easy to figure out. Yeah. Um, you know, go back even even at Sky Foundry. I think there was not as much anymore, but I think originally early on it was, well, how much that, how much disk space do I need for how many points? And I mean, yeah, we can do the back of the napkin math. It's it, but it's it's it, it's relatively straightforward, but it's like just enough of a mental hurdle that mm. maybe it slows people down or just you want to remove some of the impediments. Yeah. So, you know, technically, as a data provider, I should store by gigabyte. Right, because that's where my costs are, and I could pass it on to you much more. But no one understands what a point per gigabyte means. No, right. So I think you've got to capture those costs in ways that really people really easy for people to 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 think about, which is you know point zero zero one five cents per point per month. Right, it's all utility based, usage based. So they know that if I'm going to go do this job and I need five thousand points, you know, I know exactly what I'm paying per month. And if I only need the job for three months, I pay for that, and then I'm off. I never have to. I don't. I don't continue to pay. So you know, I think it, it's it's. There's a bunch of a bunch of simplicity involved in, in simplifying around totally. that. Cool. I, I just I just wish you were around. You would have been doing this in 2015. So keep keep going. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. How, how your, I want to talk about how your approach differs. So we've, we've talked about the IDL, you know, you're obviously seeing the vendor landscape, a bunch of people are attacking this problem, have, have identified this as something they want to build a product for. How are you thinking about this differently than others that are, that are approaching it? Well, I will say in the context of the companies that I know are doing this, so which is probably not exhaustive. And so I think, you know, probably in a couple of different ways. One, I don't think there's necessarily one way to do this. I'm not even sure we know how to do it yet. There, yeah, there's baby steps. You know, we, I think we've solved the connectivity. We've got a great product for connectivity and remote access. We've got a great story for trending, but you know that last step, that point onboarding is is it's it's a hard problem to solve, and I think it's going to be iterative. And so I think there's a journey there over the next couple of years, maybe longer, that we continue to attack that, and that's just sort of based on experience as we get there. And there's lots of different tools in the tool belt that you'll use to attack that. Um, 
I don't think we have the, the data sets and the training data to necessarily solve that 100% with ML. Um, okay. I think we get there, but I also, you know, I, this is a big data summit that happens in Richmond every year. And it's, it's actually more geared towards financial companies. So it's very, very different, but you actually get, you get a, a, an interesting perspective on how actually early data science is in its sort of career and okay. a lot. But I think we take, it, we take it granted that it can do more than it can sometimes. And so I think there's evolution that all needs to happen to get there. So, but one of the things is like, you know, if you're automating something, you need to know what you're automating first. And so mm-hmm. our approach is like, well, let's build better tools to let humans do that. And then let's evolve slowly to automating that, you know, with machines as we go. You know, I don't know if we're different because I think we're one of the few companies that just um, puts our all our pricing online. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I think I think economics is an important aspect to this as well because, you know, like I said before, you can already do this today. Right? Why would I pay extra to do this again? And so I think that you've got to be conscious of the fact that, especially in the consultants, you know, they make X percentage on a job you know, they can't probably pay $5,000 a month mm-hmm. or a year or whatever it is to do data. You know, they might, they might as well just sweat equity. They might as well just do the grunt work themselves. Yeah. So I think to, to, to justify outsourcing this kind of stuff, you've got to be, there's a price point you need to be at. We've told with things over the past year and a half. I'm not sure where exactly where the market should be, but I think we're close, um, probably um, too cheap in some cases, but Yeah. And, and one of the things that I've thought about in this, this sort of technology category, right, is a company like you starts out selling to the energy consultant at what point, and they set it up on their client's building, right? At what point does it now become an asset that the building owner cares about and wants to pay for and wants to add other systems you know, energy consultant might add BMS and meters. Building owner has a lot more concerns that could make better use of a data layer, right? At what point does it traverse over to this bigger picture play? I think there's two driving things there. And one of them is, is I'm seeing a little bit today, is, is that I think that's on the consultant or, or whoever, you know, is, is buying from us, right? Mm-hmm. It is, they may put the box there temporarily to get data out. But obviously, they're looking for service revenue, recurring revenue. So, so how yeah. do they upset what they're doing? Yeah. So, uh, some, some degree, I'm, I'm at liberty to how they approach that. But I think the other one, uh, which I only really talked about yet, is really focus on the data. But I'm not sure that that's actually really our mission statement. What we really want to do is sort of democratize how you access buildings, and that's through the API. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, long term, maybe I, I talked about this a little bit at the beginning, you know, long term, you know, and I think we're tried trending to this way is that I don't care what the heck's in the building, right? I don't even care if it's an open. I just want a REST API, right? To give to my developer. And I think you're seeing that with prop tech companies coming in, more traditional Silicon Valley companies entering the space that you're, you're seeing that transition. And I think that's going to be important to, to, to make that type of software coming down the line, work with, you know, existing building automation systems. You need this sort of intermediary layer at least in the short term. And so I think when you've got this really, really easy to use API that becomes ubiquitous, I think you start enabling a lot more use cases. The one you start, one you start enable a lot more use cases, but also you lower the barrier for future innovation. Yeah. Right. So some, so, that, so, so to some degree, this is a long-term play that like, okay, well, you know, build it before they come. If it's there, people will be like, you know, some you know, 20 year old kid in, in, in Palo Alto is like, I'm going to build the next whatever, 
you know, hey, there's this easy use API. I can talk to any building, you know, mm-hmm. I can get a start. If a context for this is Stripe, um, and I've talked about this all the time, like Stripe is a big influence on what we're doing. When I when I first started using them for this sort of side hustle I did years ago for credit card payments, I was like, I had, you know, in an hour or two stood up credit card processing, which no one, well, if anyone was doing that, um, even you now 10 years ago, knows that it was incredibly painful. Yeah. Uh, it was a huge moment, transition the whole industry. And I think that you're seeing that now with this space when we're getting the APIs in the building is that I don't think people realize how much innovation will happen because of that, right? So, so it's, an, it's, a, it's a technology enabler in a lot of cases as well, which is sort of totally. a hope and a prayer that <laughs> yeah. it happens. But So I think you've got to balance that out with you know, what are the short-term needs? And I think there's, there, you know, I mean, everyone will tell you that data is hard. They want it to be easier. So I think there are short-term needs. But I think, you know, I, to me personally, for Novin to stay relevant over the next 30, 40 years, it's, are we on the same trajectory of where technology needs are actually going and not just mm-hmm. sort of have our blinders on that, you know, we solve the problem and rate it, you know, we're done. Yeah. Sticking on to your sort of approach to the IDL, I, I, I'm wondering, you, you've talked about maybe your skepticism on how much machine learning actually provides to the process. Talk to me about your approach to data modeling itself. So that's that's I think that's a key debate in the nerd sphere around the IDL is like, should the IDL have a fully descriptive data model, or is there going to be need to be modeling done at the application layer as well? Talk to me about your so approach. I, I pull this out probably overemphasize it. There was this. this is, Probably early 2000s. So this is right. I think when Longhorn was in development. For anyone old enough to remember Longhorn, um, which was predecessor to, to Windows Vista at the time, like all these Microsoft engineers were blogging. Um, for anyone who doesn't know who blogs are, they were predecessor to, to, to social media, Twitter. Um, but <laughs> um, they were blogging about all the, t- the stuff they're doing. This one guy, this blog post, is stuck in my mind for 20 years, 15 years. Was that at the time? I didn't realize this, but all the controls in Microsoft Office were custom rendered and, and built because the standard toolkit in Windows wasn't flexible enough. Okay. So part of this work in, in Longhorn was, and I'm probably getting this completely wrong, but in .NET and XAML, some stuff they were doing at the time was that they were building this technology stack to where you could tie in in different layers to where mm-hmm. it made improvement. So if, for Microsoft Office, they could, you know, maybe they could import all the eventing, for instance, and they could customize the look and feel of the actual button. Okay. So they could start using this work and I don't know if that's why or, or, or if it just contributed, but that's sort of been some of my philosophy to technology today, right? Is that it's not about taking, you know, this big mountain of, of technology stack and forcing you to come in at the top. It's like building these layers. Um, you solve complexity in layers. That's sort of my, my overall technology approach. And so okay. and you make each of those layers accessible so that where it's appropriate, you plug in. Yeah. And so when you look at modeling, I think that's important that I make that distinction because sometimes you don't care. Sometimes you just want the data out and you want to pull it into Python or R and you just want to play with the data and you don't want that sort of impediment in a way, but there's a lot of applications where it absolutely is critical. And so, you know, where I look at our roadmap for that is one, the applications that need it mostly already have great tooling to do that. Yeah. So I think when you look at plugging in an additional tool in the stack, like Novin, you want to minimize our goal is that if we forget that we're there, we're doing a good job. Okay. Yeah. So we want to minimize the time that you actually have to interact with our system. And at some point when the entire thing is actually enabled through the API, you'll never log into Novin 
.io ever. You won't even know it's there because it'll be native tooling and all the extra downstream tools. That's sort of the, the, the nirvana from the API perspective. And so part of that is let's get the data somewhere else who already has the technology and the expertise. Yeah. And I use Skyspark a lot for that context because you know, I don't have the concept of sites and floors and stuff at the data layer, right? But in, in a lot of cases, I need that for Skyspark. So I'm building up that structure. It makes no sense to duplicate that twice. Yeah. Right. I don't think that's true for a lot of applications. So you sort of let the, the application handle it however they want to. But you know, having you know a year of experience in, in real buildings, you know, it's very obvious that it would be relatively trivial to tag a lot of the data coming in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> we know this is a you know a disk DB controller or Siemens XYZ controller, and with very high confidence, we can either pre-tag these things or suggest what these things should be tagged. That's only part of the model. But I think it aids that those, those further steps. But I think that's sort of an optional thing that you, that you add. But I also, as much as I would like the whole full fully tagged digital twin to happen, I just think it's still really murky how you get there a little bit. Um, okay. So as, as with everything I do, it's like baby steps, right? Until it's really, really clear you know, what, what the problem space is. And then yeah. you sort of attack it at full speed. And how you can provide the tooling for it, then maybe how to automate it later on. Makes sense to me. So um, everything, yeah, everything we do is really context driven, you know, and, and the feedback loop is, is so critical. That's why we went out. That's why we released so early because I needed that feedback loop to see what real people are doing. Mm-hmm. And so you build sort of more, you know, specific workflow tooling to sort of handle all those things instead of sort of saying, here's an event, you know, make, redo everything you do in your world to work with us. Uh, you know, I think that that's the wrong mentality. It's got to be flipped around to make people's yeah. lives easier for how they already work. Yeah, and, and that's the thing with the IDL is that the concept is new and so it's coming into this world of full stack solutions and it's being inserted into the middle. And I like that philosophy as far as just like, well, how do we make value happen today given that full stack world? Let's talk about, speaking of full stack worlds, let's talk about the future. Let's kind of zoom out a little bit on the future of the industry as we kind of wind down here. The, the main thing I'm wondering about here is like, you talked about House of Cards sitting on a foundation of sand, which I feel like is like a Coldplay lyric. Is that right? Uh, <laughs> I'll have to look that up. But um, where do you see like that foundation of sand going? Like what's the future of that as far as that technology progressing and becoming more structurally sound, if you will, to support all these applications that are sitting on top. Yeah, I think where my head is right now, and it's been there, but then I think it was really, really influenced a lot by, um, I read um, The Healthy Buildings, and um, Joe, Joe. Um, Joe Allen, yeah. Yeah, Joe Allen, thank you. And, and, and I think I put this on LinkedIn, but if you haven't read that book and you're listening to this podcast, you need to go stop and go read that book. I think it, it was fantastic read and really influential. And it, and it changed my perspective on buildings because, you know, prior to that, I was so, it was always like, well, justifying technology is about cost reduction and energy production. And it's actually not true at all. <laughs> it should be about the occupants and the comfort and the productivity and their health. And those things are implicitly more expensive. And so it just changes your whole perspective of how I think you go to market. And so I think that's where when you look at the future, it's that like, what do we want buildings to be, right? And how do we get there? And I think healthy spaces, you know, lighting, thermal, air, all that kind of stuff contributes to that. We do need to make it some, the example I use, 
it's not a great example, I guess, analogy. Well, I guess it, it works more than you think it does, is cars, right? Cars are today are very, very complicated. And they're almost an, almost a similar path as buildings, right? Because I've got pure passive thermal customization, right? I've got multi-zone HVAC. I've got heated seats, cooling seats. I've got continuing more stringent admission standards I need to meet. And, you know, you want the overall experience of the, of, of the occupant to get better. You know, I've got, I've got you know, automated driving, I've got, you know, nice materials, you know, more enjoyable, lower um, noise floor for the build, all that kind of stuff. And, but when you get into a car, there's a key, well, not a key anymore, you press the button now. There's a steering wheel throttle and a brake. Like I can get in any car and I can just drive, I know how it works. Like, why do we not have the technical pace and that level of simplicity in, in buildings? And it's not a technology problem. I mean, we're, we're, we've got people living in space right now on, with reusable rockets, but we can't make the west side of the building stay the same temperature in the afternoons. I know we can do it. So I think part of my is like, well, how do we, how do we get there? Right? How do we, how do we create the pathways to where we're actually enabling smart people to do smart things to actually make the offices we spend in? I think you know, Alan's um, comment was that we spend ninety percent of our time indoors. Like we're indoor species. Why do we not pay more attention to making that space more comfortable and more enjoyable? And I think those are sort of the macro ideas that I'm thinking about. And then in the background, it's almost secondary, which sounds bad as a technology company. Secondary to that is how do we provide technology that enables that, right? And how do we, how do we build the ecosystem for the right people to come together? You know, how do we break down all of these stakeholders and, and these competing incentives? So I think split incentives is the term Joe uses to get everyone motivated in the same direction to sort of accomplish anything. My typical long-winded, all over the place answer. <laughs> I think a piece of that, and yeah, I love the book too. I also posted on LinkedIn about the book a little bit. I was a little bit harsh on the book. Uh, I think I'll put that really? in the show notes as well. Why? Well, I, I feel like that, and I want to turn this into a roasting session. <laughs> of the book. It's a great book. Everyone should read it. I just feel like it looks at indoor air quality in its own silo and... I'll, I'll link to the the post in the book. Yes, indoor air quality is extremely important, but I think we've had this kind of, rightfully so because of the pandemic, we've started to view indoor air quality as like the outcome that we're trying to optimize for. Whereas really in any given building, there are many outcomes to optimize for and it's just one one thing, right? I agree. I agree. Yeah, there is, I mean, technically I think he's got somewhere, I can't remember what's benign, step framework there is a whole bunch of other stuff that contributes to that but yes i agree the emphasis is on air quality which is probably um yeah more yeah. weight than it really needs to but i think the concept of healthy buildings is something it's, it's reframed how I, I think about a lot of stuff oh me too yeah yeah it was it was the like the main basis so you took our foundations course we have an entire module on well you took the first cohort it's, it's evolved since then <laughs> well i did not do any homework either so um <laughs> no, we're not sticklers about homework in the course. Um, it's, but but we, we built a lot of our business case, like the foundation of our business case module off of that, the, the arguments made in that book. So it is really foundational. To, it really changes how you think about the industry. So let me ask you that question again, though, from a technology perspective in the building, and I'm thinking about the silos, the traditional silos, how, how do you see those, how do they need to evolve to, like you said, stay in line with where things are going technology-wise? Like what's <laughs> going to happen to the, the BMS 
the access control system moving forward. I find it super annoying that, well, first of all, anyone knows me, nothing's ever good enough. Everything's crap. <laughs> I'm like, I'm hard possible to please. Um, that's, that's the product designer in me. Like I've got a brand new space here. I guess this co-working space in, in, in Richmond where I am that I put up and again, the HVAC sucks. It's always in the wrong temperatures. It's freezing cold in the, in the winter and it bakes me in, 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 in the summer. And this building was built in 2021. But like, why is there not just a screen that I can go to that sees all this? Maybe not me as a tenant necessarily, but it's all like 10 different systems and vendors aren't going to like get together and be like, well, let's all cooperate and do this. So that's why I think I've, I've really wrapped my head around the true role, I think, of an MSI, that there needs to be a sort of the single point of contact that oversees all the technology and buildings. And, mm-hmm. and they are really one that drives some of this forward. I think when they get leverage from vendors to cooperate to some degree, but also I think the big opportunity in buildings is this sort of building OS. And there's a couple of companies doing this today. And I think that's what I see that, you know, I, I just, you know, like a VC in a car or, or app or Mac OS on a computer, right? There's just something that goes in there. That's what I interact with. I don't care all the subsystems underneath that. And there's just consistency there. My, and it's something I even toyed about doing, you know, two years ago. I was like, well, do I want to try to tackle that problem? Mm-hmm. The problem that I, and the reason I didn't was because I don't know how you justify it to building owners yet. I think that problem will get solved. Maybe I wasn't smart enough to figure it out, but I think, and I think it's wrapped up in that whole healthy building thing, right? Where we just need, we have to have higher expectations of the spaces that we live in is what drives some of that stuff. Okay. Simplicity, 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 simplicity. Everything, nothing simple, nothing simple enough. So you're picturing like an overlay software layer that is now replacing like the supervisory layer in, in today's building systems and their, their actual controllers are much simpler and actually do less and a lot more of the intelligence actually comes from the overlay. Is that what you're saying? I think it's probably more nuanced than in practice. So I don't think complexity necessarily goes away. I think we, you know, we hide it progressively with layers, but I do think from, you look at the control systems and buildings, absolutely. There's no reason. And I think this is ridiculous. And people will beat me up after this. I know I'm going to go kind of like hate mail um, that I go in and I, I custom commission this project as a snowflake. And I'm like, they all work the same. I've got an air handler, uh, chiller plant, or uh, whatever, or you know, I've got a unitary control or something. But, but it's all the same thing. I got, I got work heater, uh, heating coils, cooling coils. I got spaces. Why the hell am I redoing that every single time? Like that should be automated. Right? Yeah. We have guidance from Astro, right? You know, maybe you don't think it's accurate or good enough, but there's guidance there from from the math to make it work. Like that should just work. Like it's just yeah. put something in and it works. It's ridiculous that we're actually custom programming these things because, and that's why probably buildings don't work that great because people get it wrong right? Or the building changes, the, the environment changes around it, and those things sort of drift, and then they're not working as well as they do anymore. And so I think part of that is also that we, we get away from this sort of on-premise custom permissioning. We do something, um, I, I call it safe mode, fallback mode. I, I don't know if there's a better term for it, but there's basically not, there's an operating mode when I don't have connectivity to the internet, that the building's going to operate a certain way. Yeah. It's best to keep the, the temperature 72 degrees, light managing occupancy, all that kind of crap. But I think the logic for how we do those things is exactly what um, Matt Schwartz and you guys talked about last year with the advancing rights control. I mean, I think that is where things are going to go. Where I've got a cloud platform mm-hmm. that manages all that. And then maybe I do an hourly, honestly, you can probably do it daily. I do a daily model downloaded to the building for how I should run the next day. 
right? And yeah. into weather patterns and all kinds of stuff that would be too difficult to probably do across a portfolio of a thousand buildings. And you know, one, you've got that localization. There's one place where everything's stored, modeled, updated, but also you start to have all of the data sets in one place too. I think that's where stuff gets really cool because now you can look at across like different temperature zones and regions and, and operating performance. It's like, that's how you tease out the algorithms and the optimizations to start applying to these things across. It can be more predictive in some cases. I think that's a really cool area that's yet to happen, but I think it's going to happen. So, Cool. I, I agree. All right. Let's close this, close this nerd session down. Thanks for coming on the show. What are you uh, looking forward to this year? Progress. <laughs> I, you know, I think I say this in every single uh, Nexus Pro, like we've been saying stuff's going to get better for 20, 30 years, probably even before I was in the industry. And I think there's a melting pot currently happening from, I think, one, the age of people entering this space, um, the importance they're putting on, on buildings and healthy spaces, all that kind of stuff, and how people have grown up also. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember who told me this, but it's stuck in my mind ever since. It might have been Brian Turner. The kids have grown up with iPhones and technology and they have different expectations of how they interact with everything. Yeah. And that input, um, that energy entering the space, you know, the, 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 the influx of, of, of prop tech and you know, more traditional software companies and then you know, groups like Nexus where we're all swirling all together. I think this is probably the, the most opportune time since I've been around that something is going to be meaningfully better for building yeah. technology in the next probably five years. So I'm optimistic that it happens. And that's sort of what my goal is, is that Novent can do our part to help shepherd that in some shape or form. I love that. Obviously that's what I'm trying to be a part of as well. And so I think that's a great place to, to end off. Thanks so much, Andy, for coming on the show. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, man. All right, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.